It's June 19th, 2008, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. I apologize for the long delay. Unfortunately, I had a family medical emergency that took me out and uh, sent me out to New York for, for almost a month. And uh, even after getting back, it was uh, tough going uh, playing catch up and getting getting everything that I needed to take care of, uh, taken care of. But um, I'm kind of settled in a bit before I'm off to uh, Puerto Rico for a long-deserved vacation. But before I leave... I wanted to give you guys a new a new episode because you guys have been so patient and to be quite honest, I, I, I miss doing the show. But today's guest is John Sullivan and John is a senior photographer at the Huntington Library and Botanical Garden in San Marino, California, just a little south of me. Um, I, I live in Altadena and, and uh, it's only about like 15 minutes um, from, from my house. But what's amazing about the conversation I had with John is that I had the opportunity to visit him at uh, his facility and his studio over there at the gallery, and I just saw some amazing, amazing things. Uh, for some of you who may not be familiar with, with Huntington or may know it lar- largely because of the garden, they have an incredible archive of, of books and documents and artwork, and it's John and his staff's responsibility to take photographs of these things, and in some cases, make photographs and digital documents of of items and artwork that are hundreds of years old. Um, it, it was just phenomenal to walk around the studio and look at the work and, and to see not only, you know, a, a great facility, but also to see how photography plays such an important role in being able to maintain our history, our visual history, whether it's embodied in a in a photograph or whether it's a, embodied in a book or, or in a piece of artwork. And one of the great things I saw there was an archive of photographs by uh, Southern California Edison, who had an extensive collection of, of photographs that they had used to document that the work that, work that they did throughout Southern California for you know, over 70 or 80 years. And the quality of the images and, and what was being revealed in those images was just a thrill for me. And I, I felt really blessed to have the opportunity not only to look at it and to, and to learn, uh, learn so much, but also to recognize why photography is so important and why even today in the age of digital and fast computers and high pixel counts, why traditional and and sometimes formats that are no longer available anymore were and are still being used to help us remember. Well, enough of my rambling. Enjoy our conversation with John Sullivan. And then um, when he retired, there was no retirement plan. So he had no money. And, and oh. uh, he couldn't pay his rent after he retired. So his assistant allowed him to live with him. And he lived with his assistant until he died. 
Oh, wow. That's how I got this chair. His assistant called me. And um, actually, his son, the son of his assistant called me and said, my father died, and he had this stuff from Dr. Bendrickson. Do you want it? So I said, yeah, yeah, I'll take it. You know. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing, because it's just like there's so much history, and there's so much... Um, you know, so much of a legacy that mm-hmm. exists here, which yeah. I think is phenomenal. And photography, in and of itself, is that. But yeah. to be working in the midst of it, that that is phenomenal. It it is pretty amazing. I mean, we are we don't get to choose what we look at, but we are given things every day that to photograph and record and make copies of, and there are things that are just amazing. It's an amazing collection. Yeah. I mean, you know, talking about um, the collection is so large that if they misshelve a book, it usually takes 40 years for them to find it again. That's how long it takes. Because wow. there's an, an, almost a million rare books and six million manuscripts. And people say, well, are you going to digitize everything? Well, if we had 100 people working 24 hours a day, we wouldn't get done for 1,000 years. Wow. It's that big. <laughs> so, so, you know, all the years we've done, you know, the hundreds of thousands of images we've done are really a, t- a tiny little drop in the bucket. Wow. <laughs> this is never a shortage of work around here. No, never. <laughs> never. So tell me how, how you began as, as, as a photographer. I do want to talk a lot about what you do here, but sure. uh, let's, how did you begin and, and how did you end up, um, end up here? Doing well, my dad had a collection of cameras and he was a photographer when he was a kid and uh, he did that as a hobby and uh, I found one of his cameras in a closet and asked him to tell me, show me how to use it and so he showed me how to use a speed graphic and process 4 by 5 film in a tray and um, that got me started and then I went to uh, Brooks and got a degree and I had a friend who got a job here uh, as the assistant photographer because the head of the, the photo department was retiring. And so uh, he said, you know, this guy's going to retire and then I'm going to be the head of the department and I need somebody to help me. So I said, all right, I'll, I'll do that, you know. And um, he hired me and I came to work here 30 years ago and uh, I was his assistant and I carried equipment around and uh, made prints and, you know, did various menial kind of things. And then um, as time went on, uh, we had more and more stuff to do and the nature of the job started to change. It used to be that we had almost no equipment. We had old, old wooden view cameras. Um, We shot everything on 8x10 film. We tray processed all the film. Um, we never shot, if we shot 35, we shot slides. That was about it. And um, when things shifted in, this, in the 80s to uh, the, the photo department became so bound up in having no equipment that it was doing virtually, it had, it's had such a tiny subset of things that it could do that we were being totally left behind. Um, I mean, other f- people would come from other photo departments and they would look at us and they'd say, what is it you're doing here? 
<laughs> you're not. You're making eight by ten prints, and you're making slides, and that's all you're doing. And um, so, my I started to look at computers, and um, at that time, there were no digital cameras, but you could scan things. So we finally uh, got a Mac and a scanner, and we started to scan things. And people said, uh, people on the staff actually said. Uh, why are you doing that? You're wasting time. It's useless. Who's going to want a scan of anything? What could they do with it anyway? You can't make a print. Um, and gradually what happened was um, there is a, a scholar here, who uh, Bob Essek, who has a, uh, one of the largest collections of Blake material in the world. And he looked at a plan that I wrote for digitizing, and he said, I'll support this. I'll buy this equipment if you do this. And that was about 12 years ago, mm -hmm. I think. And then we, then we started to really buy some serious equipment. Yeah. And uh, the boss I had at that time left, and uh, I became the senior photographer, and then we just went full on into digital. Uh -huh. And uh, you know, we still have the eight by 10 cameras. We can still process film in a tray, but Nobody wants that. We've gone from 5,000 prints, uh, regular silver prints a year, to zero. And now we do um, probably 7,000 images a year and almost no printing. Yeah. You know, what's really fascinating for me is the fact that, you know, oftentimes the, the whole discussion of digital is often focusing on the fact of that this new technology allows us to produce these new kind of images, like mm -hmm. these panoramics, these these HDIs. But you guys are doing something that's just as amazing, is that you're taking the technology and you are opening up opportunities for people to see work that mm -hmm. are decades, if not hundreds of years old, that very few people would have the opportunity to see unless they came here and were doing, were doing research. Yeah. And you're able to bring out quality of these, of these, you know, these ancient books or these decades-old photographs that otherwise would be, you know, in a shelf somewhere. Yeah, yeah, we're we're fulfilling what Henry Huntington had in mind in 1925, which I think is really pretty cool. I mean, I had a scholar come to me, and he had a manuscript, and what it was were um, blank pages in the manuscript. And he said, I want photographs of the pinholes in this manuscript. And I said, well, for one thing, I can't even see them. And why do you want pictures of pinholes? He said, because when they, when they figured out how to determine from one side of the page to the other where the illustrations would sit, they had to be very careful because the pigments would go through the paper sometimes. And so they they decided that they would push pins through the paper to line up the registration from one side of the page to the other so that they knew where the text block would go mm. of flowing around the illustrations and there wouldn't be bleed through and spoil one side of the paper to the other. And he said they used a specific system and I'm studying the system and I have these blank pages that they did the pinholes but they didn't do the illustrations. So we figured out a way to do it with 
using the digital photography. Yeah. And he was able to see what he needed to see so he could explain exactly how they did this 700 years ago. Mm. Um, so there's all, these, there's all this information in the paper, and now we can start pulling it out. We can actually get it out. We couldn't do that before. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's only so much you can do with dodging and burning. Um, and infrared film and ultraviolet film can only go so far. Mm. But with this, you, you know, you have all those wavelengths of light available to you, and you can compress and expand and, you know, double expose and triple expose and, you know, do, do whatever, almost anything that you need to do. Uh, the stuff you were just showing me of the SoCal uh, mm-hmm. Edison collection of images, talk to me about that, particularly um, this, all the different film formats and camera formats oh, yeah. that we use that, to create all those images. Often people think now just 35 millimeter or digital, right? And, and but the history of photography, there were a whole variety of different formats. What do you, what, what have you discovered about photography as a result of not looking at not only looking at the Edison collection, but any other photographic collection that's that's passed your way? Well, I think really the way I see it is, it whatever whatever comes out in the techniques of photography is to fulfill a need. And in the beginning, they used the biggest glass plate they could get their hands on. You know, they had mammoth plates, uh, 24 by, you know, 20 by 24 inch glass plates because they wanted detail. And they're doing contact prints. Um, Then they found flexible film. They found that that with a better emulsion, they could drop down to 8 by 10, and then they could drop down to 5 by 7, and and then they could drop down to 4 by 5. And with 4x5, they could actually hold a camera in their hand, use a speed graphic. Um, and photography is mostly driven by need. And most of the need with photography is, I want my picture now. I want really high quality, and I want my picture now. And so that's really what's pushed photography in the technical direction that, it go, that it's gone in. The formats get smaller. The emulsions get sharper, uh, the speeds get higher, so that um, photographs can be taken um, without a lot of time invested in in an environment that you couldn't do it before. So now you have the Nikon D3 that you can push up to 25,000 ISO. So now you can shoot in places where you couldn't steady the camera but you didn't have enough light. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, the way that it worked for us in the past is that we would uh, shoot an 8x10, tray process it, make a contact print, mail that off to somebody. Now, nobody has the time for that. Yeah. They, want, uh, they want us to shoot it today and FTP it to them in an hour. <laughs> 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 well, this, this Edison collection. Tell us about yeah. what, how many, how many images con- uh, uh, consist of that collection, and what are the images? Uh, well, it's about uh, forty thousand images in the whole collection, and we have permission to uh, copy uh, up. F- they, they go from the eighteen hundreds, uh, the late eighteen hundreds, all the way up to the nineteen nineties, but our our. Uh, 
project is limited to up to about the 1950s due to copyright considerations. Um, so essentially, that collection is the history of photography. I mean, it's certainly the history of every kind of uh, format you can think of. They start off with 8 by 10 glass plates and they wind up with 35 millimeter. And everything in between, I mean, two and a quarter, three and a quarter, three and a quarter, four and a quarter, um, every possible size they could think of to use that, that made it possible for the photographer to fulfill his assignment, they used it. Mm -hmm. um, when they could go to it, they, they went to it. And um, that's the fascinating thing of that collection is that you have a span of images. I don't think there's another collection that really has that span. Yeah. From uh, you know they as a company, their 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 whole thing was to document everything for the company, and so they did, and it's great, it's fantastic. Just the fact that they documented houses that they electrified means that we have a survey of whole neighborhoods that have disappeared, especially in Los Angeles, because mm -hmm. everything disappears really quick, and um, that's invaluable. Yeah. Plus, we have their uh, efforts to make money on electricity by creating toasters and egg cup, you know, holders, and they made all these things. They made vacuum cleaners, and then they tried to sell these appliances to people who had never had a toaster. I mean, the, you know, if you've never owned a toaster, you don't know what is it. How does it work? Right. What's it going to do for me? You know, I've been toasting bread on a stick <laughs> over the over the gas. You know, and that seems to work. You know, why would I want a toaster? But the, and then the other thing that they that's fascinating is the social implications of it. They showed uh, an ad with this woman <clears throat> who was amazing her husband by having a toaster and an egg cooker and an ironing board. Uh, and doing all these things for her husband. And they're, they're all plugged into a socket in the ceiling. It looks like one of those booth cartoons from the New York Times, yeah. you know, where the guy's got, like, everything's plugged into this one thing in the ceiling because they didn't know what a wall plug was. Yeah, it all came from one source, <laughs> right. Yeah, right. <laughs> now we don't have enough outlets for all the gadgets and doohickeys yeah, that we have. Yeah, right. So... The, it, it, that's a fantastic collection, you know, and in terms of the spread of time, that's one of the few collections that we have that really goes that yeah. that distance. For you, for you, what's what, what's some of the thrills of looking at some of those some of those images? I really like to look at um, that picture of the street at night, where you can actually look into the shops and see um, these details. That's what I like are details, um, where it's almost as if you can walk into that picture and into that store and look at the celluloid collar display, and and you look at the cars and you think, this is this is not like a, a car that you'd see at Harris in Tahoe that's been completely reconditioned and looks brand new. This is a car that somebody drove every day, you know. Right. It's it's a a 1911 Humbler um, with worn seats and somebody used it every day like an old Toyota. But it's a car that's, um, you know, 
this this is a new kind of technology that people just figured out how to use. So uh, it's as if you can go back into that world right. and and be there. It's amazing. And, and I feel that when I look at the prints, there's mm -hmm. just the few prints that you showed me there. I mean, you're making these huge, these huge prints, and because they were using the larger format, the amount of detail in those images just it's, leap off the, the paper. It's really fantastic. It's, um, it's sort of, uh, it reminds me of, uh, I've been reading the John Adams book, mm, yeah. and uh, the detail that they put into their descriptions of life, because they had no other way to record things other than to write letters and keep journals. Uh, we don't keep journals anymore. We don't write letters, but we do take pictures. And that's all we have now. We have this visual record. And so, um, you know, that's how we can go back and be in that time. That's the fascinating thing for me, is to be in that time. Mm. And it's, it's a really interesting time we live in because there's an abundance of images Mm -hmm. that are being made, largely the digital. Yeah. And uh, one of the, I saw a funny, there's a, a comic strip called What the Duck. Oh, Have yeah. Have you seen that? Mm -hmm. And this week they had uh, one where, I guess, the, the baby duck asked to see some pictures. I thought, well, let's go back to the album. And it goes back and there are a bunch of obsolete computers that are just, <laughs> you know, just collapsed in the corner. Yeah, right. like, uh, You know, pointing to the fact that, you know, it used to be like, tangible things, like a print or an album or something, have those photographs, but now they're being sort of digitized. And I think there's a there's a risk that a lot of that stuff can, can be lost because it takes True. that much more work to, you know, make sure that not only do you have them on one hard drive, but you have them on a second hard right. drive. And there's there's a lot of history that's at risk of being being lost. Um, yeah, the digital technology is phenomenal in what it provides us in terms of that immediacy, but in terms of the long term, um, you have to be a lot more dutiful about, you know, making sure that they mm -hmm. that they live on. You guys are digitizing a, a lot of stuff oh, here, yeah. but uh, tell us a whole about 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 that process and how uh, what sort of the challenge some of the challenges are in terms of maintaining it and being able to distribute it. Well, the thing that we learned a long time ago was that uh, what you have to go for copy work. You have to go with the highest resolution that you can possibly get. You have to get the, you have to really overdo it as much as possible, because once you scan something, we did a project a long time ago where we scanned uh, Blake drawings, and we f we thought that what we would do is get sufficient resolution, <clears throat> but um, we realized that the format that we scanned these into within five years, that wasn't even close. <clears throat> so we had to do the entire job over again. And since then, my feeling was that I really don't want to do things over again. The material's too fragile. I don't want to scan it, you know, every five years. So we're going with equipment that produces a, a, a wall size image, if necessary. Um, but that just means that we've forestalled the day when we have to get that material out and scan it again. Mm -hmm. And that's helped us a lot. Um, the other thing is go for ultimate fidelity. You know, 16-bit, 32-bit, whatever it takes.
to get the most information into that file, the, the, the best possible file that you can get, because then you have all the information that you can possibly get and extract, because you don't know what you're going to need to extract from that image. Yeah. And um, that's really what copy, copy work's all about. It's, a, it's all about recording at the highest possible fidelity so that you don't have to do it again. And, and as to losing images, we lose a percentage of images as we go along because we have failures. We have hard drive failures. We have disk failures. Mm. The media itself fails, you know, on the DVD uh, discs. But one of the things we've learned is that the more copies we make, the less, the better chance we have of recovery. So we figure we're going to lose, uh, you know, a quarter of one percent of our images through failure. Wow. But what we do is we make two sets of each image, and we keep one set in one area and one set in another area. So we, if we have a failure, uh, Devon is constantly remastering everything. Every five years we remaster everything. So she, every day she's remastering stuff. Mm. She finds by her remastering when she finds that an image can't be read, she goes to the backup set and pulls that back in and then creates a remastered set and then we go on. Mm. So well, ultimately what's going to happen is we will have an array of hard drives that will be um, backed up redundantly to the point where if a one hard drive fails in that array, you pull the hard drive out, throw it away, and put a new one in. You haven't lost anything because you, you're creating one of the things that they're talking about is kind of a cloud. You, use a, you create a, har, a, a hard drive array where everything is redundantly copied. Mm -hmm. throughout that array, more holographic than sequential. That way, if you have a hard drive failure, then you haven't lost anything, you've just lost some capacity. Yeah. And I think ultimately that's the way it's going to go. You're going to have solid state storage in a cloud type array, and then that will be the end of it. Yeah. Unless you wipe out the entire storage facility, you're not going to lose anything. How has this work shaped or changed your passion for, for photography? Mm. Um, well, I've gone in two different directions, personally. I've gone back to film, shooting the Leica, um, because I really like the way that machine works, and I like uh, the new Previa X film. Mm -hmm. And then the other direction I've gone in is using the P45 Phase One because it has such a massive capability. You can you get so much detail from it. It's more like shooting a view camera. But the only thing I miss are movements, um, mm -hmm. but I get around that with Photoshop. Yeah. So I go in those two directions. Yeah. Uh, I like shooting the Leica because I can just pick it up in my hand and just walk around with it. Yeah. So tell me about your personal work. Um, my personal work is, is uh, I pretty much shoot with a Leica, and I, I, when I see something I, uh, that I like, I record it. 
<laughs> and I'm not much for shooting people. I've never been very good at that. But um, I do like to shoot uh, scenes, small scenes with light and shadow, and that's about it. Hmm. And uh, I've been photographing uh, the dirty dishes next to the sink for the last couple of years. Um, <laughs> and what happens is, uh, you know, we have, we, I cook at my house, and I cook and then I pile the dishes next to the sink. And then sometimes I wash them and sometimes they're there the next morning. And the, the light comes in and hits the sink dishes and it looks good, I take a picture of it. So. <laughs> Pictures are everywhere. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, they are. And I've seen some incredible compositions with the light skimming around those dirty dishes. Um, I'm a lot less uh, interested in being a great artist than I was. I'm more interested in uh, if I see something I want to capture. I'm more of a butterfly collector than an artist. Mm. <laughs> but, it, you know, I think it's, it's, there's a sort of earnestness that a lot of people have mm -hmm. about photography, mm -hmm. you know, about either wanting to become professional or getting work that's serious. But one of the right. best parts about it is the fact that it allows you to be an observer of the mundane and yet see the beauty and the brilliance of of the simplicity that the nature in the world has to offer. And I think that, you know, whether or not you define yourself as an artist, mm -hmm. part of what photography is is the, is the opportunity it provides us to be able to witness, to be witness to that and to be able to share that with others in, in the photograph. Yeah, I think that um, when I was a lot younger, I used to worry about what I was trying to say and uh, how will people feel about this and now what I really want is to please myself I want the pleasure of having uh, gotten something that um, that gives me a feeling it gives me a certain feeling and that's that's what I want mm -hmm. and so it's much better it's a lot freer way to take pictures than than any other way that I've come across yeah there's no agenda there particularly and um, it's, it's just, um, the nice thing about the Leica for me is that it doesn't get in my way. And I would use a digital one, but too much money. <laughs> uh, and I've noticed that the film, uh, the film flow works out just fine. It's slower in terms of, I don't know if I've got the picture until I process the film, then I have to scan the film. And now I've learned that um, I do so much superimposition in Photoshop that I've learned that I can vary exposures and shoot various different exposures and angles and then pull stuff and, from various images and just stack them mm -hmm. to get what I want. So I've really overcome a lot of the limitations of the film yeah. by using combining it with the techniques I've learned, you know, shooting digital. Well, you were talking about earlier about some of the challenges that you have as a photographer just at the job here. Mm -hmm. Just some of the things you're required to, to, to photograph. You're talking to me about the, the rugs. Oh, yeah. Uh, you, right. And you're also talking, talking to me about those glass plates that you were able to converge into panoramics that were mm -hmm. never intended to be a continuous panoramic originally unless right, they right. had a particular 
let's talk about specifically the, the panoramic that you showed me, because I think that really speaks to how digital now provides us an opportunity to see photographs in a way that that may have it, they had intended, but they didn't have the technology to do it yeah. back then. Yeah, well, when, when this guy went up on top of this uh, hill over by La Cañada and rotated his camera and photographed, you know, six different 8 by 10 glass plates, he created a panorama, but because of the fact that he's rotating a camera, you, 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 don't, you have separate photographs that don't work together unless you, if you cut them out and stuck them together, they wouldn't look right. And only with, you know, Photoshop can you take those and stretch them so that they blend together and then fuse all those images together. And um, that's, that's an incredible thing. Being able to uh, take separate images and put them together is much more powerful than uh, getting a wider lens. Yeah, and a these images are 70 years old. Yeah, yeah, right. And then, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these uh, nitrate panoramas that we have, um, uh, you know, they can't be printed, really. I mean, there, there aren't really very good ways to take a piece of photographic paper that's five feet long and run it through chemicals and get an even, really nice even print out of it. You can do it with sponges and mops and all kinds of stuff like that, but you're never going to get it. It's never going to be as good as immersing the whole paper in a, in a tray. So being able to scan that stuff and blend it together and then print it out on a, on a big Epson printer, mm -hmm. you get a much better print than, than even they could get. Yeah, They couldn't even get as good a print as that. So uh, it's great because now you're pulling the real potential out of the negative. You're getting all that the negative can do. And some of these negatives that we do are so grossly overexposed that nobody hasn't been able to print them until now anyway. Mm. Um, I mean, since they only had extinction meters to use, no electric light meter, um, you can, we can take these negatives, put them on a light table, and, and make multiple exposures so we can, we can expand the crushed uh, tones and bring them out again so mm. you can actually see an image. Wow. So it's, there's a lot being done in terms of you know, making those negatives salvageable again. Um, it's, uh, and I think it, it really is, provides a great opportunity for some of the photographers whose names you know, we may or may not know, to mm -hmm. have an opportunity to see exceptional work, oh, yeah. you know, just come to the fore. Even if they were doing this as their sort of job, there were a lot of people who took a lot of pride in what they did. Absolutely. And it really shows in their photographs. Yeah. And I think it's wonderful to have a chance to, to see the work and do it. Mm -hmm. And that must be one of the greatest satisfactions that you have, particularly being a photographer, to be yeah. a oh, another yeah. photographer. Well, there's a lot of architectural photography from the 1950s that we have. We have a collection of color uh, transparencies in the 1950s. They've all gone bad, you know, because of the ectochrome. Mm -hmm. and, but with Photoshop, you can actually pull those different layers into, into condition again. And you, even with film crossover, you can correct that, and you can actually see what that ectochrome really looked like, and that's really exciting when you can when you can make that 
uh, magenta ectochrome back to what it looked like in, in 1955, mm. you know. And um, we did a, 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 sh a whole show of some of that a few months ago, and uh, it was great. It was nice to be able to see this guy's work again. Yeah. You know. What's one of been one of the bigger surprises that you've had as a result of doing this? Uh, well, I guess the biggest surprise is that I started off doing uh, copy work, and now I'm wandering around taking photographs of gardens. Um, for some reason, uh, the copy work, uh, the, the, the Huntington Press has moved over from being entirely a scholarly press to now wanting to do books that show the gardens. And um, they've given me the opportunity to go out there and photograph these gardens, and then we create these books. I'll show you, uh, this, is, this is the desert garden book. We just finished this. Um, this is the 100th anniversary of the, of the desert garden, and uh, not all those are my pictures, but um, I did a lot of work in there and was able to just go around and photograph an amazing collection of plants and, uh, and, and really get some pretty exciting stuff, I think. Yeah, this is... This is one of the big destinations for a lot of photographers who like photographs oh, yeah. and plants. I mean, they're here, you know, every every weekend because of the wide mm -hmm. variety of plants and just and just the, the landscaping here is just 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 phenomenal. So for you to have an opportunity to be able to yeah to to do it, particularly when the light is really nice, yeah, oh yeah, it's probably great. It is. It's wonderful. Um, I like doing copy work, but I like this too. This is this is great. It's nice to get out and shoot this stuff, and then see a book, you know, after you're done. Yeah, I, there are a lot of photographers who, um, to to publish a book is the most agonizing thing they could do in their lives. To get somebody to agree to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to produce a book with their photographs in it is it's almost impossible for mm -hmm. people. But I've they come to me and they say. Well, here's what we're doing. Go out there and do this. <laughs> I don't have to walk out. I don't have to convince anybody. I don't have to uh, beg some publisher to please look at my photographs. Um, they're, they're saying, go get some photographs and bring them back to us, and that's your assignment. Is there a particular part of the, of the gardens here that is, is your favorite to, to photograph in, or a particular location in, in, in you know, the estate here? Actually, um, I've been shooting the Chinese garden, and uh, they asked me to shoot some of the Japanese garden to supplement these pictures of the Chinese garden. And I think uh, I, I really like working in the Japanese garden. I like the sensibility of it. I yeah. like, the, I like the, the, uh, the calmness of it. it. It's a very special garden, and it's been here since the 1920s. They, in fact, the Chinese, the Japanese house was moved from Japan in pieces and placed there yeah. and reassembled there. Um, I love the Chinese garden. It's a very interesting garden, but uh, I like the sensibility of the Japanese garden. And my next book will be on the Japanese garden. Oh, so. yeah. Awesome. <laughs>
Well, the way I always end uh, my conversations is by asking a photographer to recommend another photographer who they think that people should uh, uh, check out and explore. They can be living or dead. So who would that be for you and why? Oh, um, you know, I kind of like um, David Douglas Duncan's work. Mm. I, I, I've been thinking about um, those guys that went out and shot with uh, Tri-X 35mm and um, he did a lot of photographs in that realm of Vietnam and uh, Lyndon Johnson and uh, all kinds of stuff that's um, really um, that quality of Tri-X 35 um, that grainy yeah. kind of quality is almost more real than digital in some ways. It's got a really harsh reality to it that's um, that you can't. I don't think you can really reproduce it except by doing that. Yeah, it, it's one of those little realms where you can't use a grain filter and you can't use uh, color and make it black and white and you mm -hmm. can't do on this. It's just not going to work. Um, and I think I think his photographs are very special. I like I like his stuff. That's a great recommendation. Well, thank you, John. It's, this has been a thrill. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks again for joining me for another episode of the show. If you have any comments or suggestions, please email me at thecandidframe@gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. And if you've downloaded the episode. Over the next couple of days and you're in Puerto Rico or know of a good place that I should go in Puerto Rico, send me an email and let me know. I'll be there for, for an entire luxurious and hopefully fun-filled week. So until next time, this is Ivarin Xperello and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com photocastnetwork.com